Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 313. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, something I have never covered before, which is amazing. 313 numbered episodes, more than like 360 some odd total episodes, and never touched on this. Now, I say that, and that's only half true. My guest this week is Jeff Cass. And Jeff Cass is a former journalist, he's an author, and he wrote Columbine, A True Crime Story, the definitive book about the Columbine tragedy that happened in April of 1999. So I've had plenty of journalists, plenty of authors on this show, but what Jeff did after leaving that career is something I've never covered. Jeff is a private investigator and founder and head of the CAS Group. That's right, a private investigator. Cool, right? Outside of what I've seen portrayed in media, I know literally nothing about private investigators, and this episode was really, really illuminating. Because what do you think, right? Kind of a seedy-looking guy wearing a trench coat, maybe a fedora, investigating whether some guy's wife is cheating on him. All of those things, trench coat false, fedora false, cheating wife. In Jeff Cass's case, he's never done a case like that. So what do private investigators actually do? And what I found, it's not that different from what journalists do. So if you're an investigative journalist, if you're doggedly chasing down leads, interviewing people, trying to find documents, whatever it is, it's very, very similar to what a journalist does. So the transition was very natural to him. And so this is one of my favorite types of episodes where we get to talk about two different kinds of things. They're related, sure, but they're different. So we talk about Columbine. We talk about how he was positioned to cover Columbine so extensively, why he ended up writing the definitive book about it. And then, once the newspaper industry kind of imploded, how did he transition into private investigator? And what does that work actually look like? It's all great. So, before we get to that, first of all, a couple of shouts. One goes to my friend Jonathan Stein, who recommended Jeff here. And I'm so grateful that he did, because this is a terrific episode. I can't wait to bring it to you. So, John, thank you. Any other leads you want to send me? Very much appreciated. Secondly, if you're listening on iTunes, if you're listening on Spotify, if you're listening on Stitcher... Whatever platform you're on, if you can just take a second, leave us a rating. If you have a few more seconds, write a few sentences about what you like about this show. That type of thing is worth its weight in gold in terms of podcast production. So if you can take a couple of seconds, that would be really, really helpful. Also, hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes come directly to you. You don't even have to do anything. They just show up on your listening device and ain't life grand. That's it in terms of plugs. Let's get to this week's show, episode 313. Features Jeff Cass. He is a former journalist with the Rocky Mountain News and other places. He's the author of Columbine, a true crime story. And he's a private investigator and founder of the Cass Group. We got a lot to get to. Let's get to it. His episode starts right now. Well, it was a big part of my career, right? I was there for 10 years. I covered the biggest story of my life, you know, the Columbine shootings. Mm -hmm. I, I, it was a very good paper for me to work at. They were very kind with me. I actually was there as a staff writer, but I mostly worked 
part-time because I was either working on my Columbine book or when I started working at the Rocky, I actually had already been a Rocky Mountain West correspondent for a number of national publications like Boston Globe, uh, U.S. News and World Report, Christian Science Monitor, Newsday. So I juggled that too. But um, for me, it was a very good place to work. I had come from the LA Times. So I thought there was a lot more, and I felt there was a lot more collaboration and cooperation amongst reporters. That's nice. Rocky. Yeah. I, and the way you're describing that, being a correspondent for, you know, the, the, the Rocky Mountain region correspondent for, you know, papers in Boston and Philadelphia and other places. Man, that model seems like a million miles away in 2021 now, doesn't it? Yes and no. I mean, I, when, when I stopped doing it to a large degree because, yeah, they ran out of money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Even though I was, you know, arguably cheap labor, right? Cause I was like 1099 freelance correspondent. Sure. I was non-staff. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. So. I did. I mean, I covered Columbine for the Rocky, but also for New York Newsday, right? Wow. Like I had the front page story in New York Newsday the day after Columbine. Um, and I covered all sorts of things for them for years. And I took a break after my Columbine book came out because uh, I was work- finishing the book and then I went on a book tour and I called over. So this would have been uh, 2009. Around there, I'm not exactly sure, but I called over to the national desk at Newsday. I'm like, oh yeah, is so and so there? They're like, nah, they're not here. I'm like, well, what about so and so? Like, I was asking for all the national editors. Right. Like, oh yeah, they're they're all gone. I'm like, well, you know, like, where is everybody? They're like, we don't have a national desk anymore. Wow. Like, there were like four or five editors, including a national editor, and then like four or five deputy national editors. I'm like, they were all gone. <laughs> Just like, and, and I mean, o- over what time period? Like, how, how, like, what, what was the erosion? Was it all of a sudden or were they, like, was it quick? It seemed like within about a one year time span. Okay. So, I, I mean, that's pretty substantial. And we might as well get right into it. So this is Jeff Cass and former reporter for the Rocky Mountain News, uh, writer of Columbine, a true crime story and also the founder of Cass Research Group, we have to give a shout first to Jonathan Stein, who recommended you to me, and I'm glad we connected. So uh, welcome. It's it's great to have you here, Jeff. Yeah, and I think it's very important to give that shout-out to Jonathan Stein because he said he was going to listen to this. Okay, good. Well, uh, I'm glad that he is. Uh, he, he was a former guest, and I think we did some good work in talking about what personal injury attorneys actually do and why they're necessary and you know, fighting against some some bad practices of, of large companies. Um, so I'm intensely proud of that episode, and I'm glad he recommended you to me. You mentioned Columbine as being the biggest story that you ever worked on, and of course, I mean, that it's still more than 22 years after the fact. You say the word Columbine, the school shooting is what comes into people's minds. I'm curious, how were you positioned to be the one who did the bulk of the coverage of Columbine, and how did you become associated with that so intimately? Well, I happened to be one of the first reporters on scene that day. But, I mean, there were a lot of reporters on scene that day. I mean, not as many in the days to come when, or the days following the shootings when, you know, reporters were flying in from all over the world. I mean, not only all over the country, but literally all over the world. Um, 
you know, I happened to be here, but I think the geography, me being here was part of it maybe, but so I covered Columbine like every single day for about the first two or three weeks, like literally every day. So even on Sunday, I would go to area churches, right, to see what was being said, for example, in, in the sermons about, you know, trying to make sense of Columbine. Again, I was just basically working every single day. Yeah. I think what sort of positioned me to write a book about it, it wasn't, you know, basically it was just my own idea to keep going forward because my thought was, despite the international media coverage, uh, and the flood of reporters, there's got to be other stuff out there, right? Yeah. My thought was if you keep going and you keep digging, you're going to find more stuff. There's always more stuff. And actually, now that I think of it, there's another John. <laughs> me, I, you know John Krakow? Yeah. Right? He, he wrote Into the Wild. I think he lives in Boulder, Okay. by the way. Maybe he's somebody you should have on your show. Oh, cool. All right. But basically, you know, was a huge part of the, the narrative nonfiction movement. And I actually listened to a podcast he was on just a few months ago. And he said, um, if you scratch six inches below the surface, you know, you're always going to find more. You know, really, that was sort of my guiding philosophy at the time. You know, I hadn't listened to that podcast 20 years ago, but it was that if you scratch six inches below the surface, Despite all the news that's already out there about Columbine, you're going to find more stuff. I, I think that's really insightful and really instructive and absolutely correct, given the way your book was received. What I'm curious about is sort of the why, because a lot of people, I think, when it comes to something like tragedy like this, and when you are immersed in it every single day, that's going to take its toll on you mentally, Yet you kept going in the face of this and you kept finding more and more stuff. Two questions for you. What was the impetus for you to continue down this? Like, why continue to pursue this? Um, and secondly, were there points where you ever thought to yourself, I cannot do this. Like, this is too much to bear. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with, you know, with, with dealing and immersing myself in, in this tragedy every single day. I'm, I'm just curious about your mindset in terms of those two questions. Well, I think. The, the idea to keep going was, um, it was a mystery. Not so much. I mean, we know who did it, right? We, we know to a large degree what happened inside the school that day. Right. But the big mystery that I wanted to solve and that pushed me into doing this was around that time, you know, school shootings were cropping up here and there. I mean, and, you know, they weren't like the mass shootings, right? They're right. Done by, that are now being done by adults. Um, right. There were like were minor not. ones in like Arkansas and Tennessee. Like before Columbine, there were just a small handful of them. Exactly. Right. But, but the thing was, it was still like they had never existed before. Right. So even though it was a small number, it was like it came, it still was coming out of like nowhere. It seemed like all like, you know, when I went to high school 30 years ago, it was like, I, there, I would never even have thought, the idea never even entered my mind. Not, not that I was, right. you know. No, that it was even possible. Yeah, right. So then Columbine was 1999, but there had been like three or four or five before then. And I was like, what is going on? Even though it's a small number, it's an incredible twist. It's a pattern starting to emerge, right? Yeah. So, and I, my thought was, well, 
you know, what the heck is going on? You know, the, where is this coming from? And so when, when you started to unpack that and you started to put some pieces together, I don't want to spoil a book. I mean, we're talking about a book that's 12 years old at this point, but for anyone who hasn't read it, what were some of the things that you found in terms of uncovering that in, in answering that question? Well, basically, so the, the two killers at Columbine and in general, right? They're disaffected, likely bullied, basically on the fringes of the social order of the schoolyard, which, you know, there's lots of kids like that in schools all over the country, all over the world, really. Sure. But what what was going on with the school shootings, the pattern I found was that they were occurring in suburbs and small towns. So in those places like Columbine, where it's overwhelmingly white, the, the two killers were, were white too. So there's not, I don't mean to say there's a racial component, but I mean to say, those schools in the sub, in suburbs like Columbine are very homogeneous. Yeah. Right. There's lots of sameness. People are, you know, tend to be on the same page. Yes, there's cliques and whatnot, but there's just a lot of mainstream, regular, normal people. And if you're an outcast, you're really an outcast. There's right. no other place for you to go to find identity, to find friends. And, you know, you have a couple friends, you have a few friends like the Columbine killers, but you still feel like you're at the bottom of the earth. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting growing up I, because I was a junior in high school when the Columbine shooting happened in 1999. For most of my high school career, I was just down the road at Golden High School. So, I mean, what is that? Like 10 miles away. Yeah. And so I had some friends who actually knew those two guys and would cross paths with them occasionally at parties. Like the thing was, Everyone is disaffected in high school in one way or another. Like, high school is an unsatisfying experience on many fronts. But that certainly doesn't drive people to cross the Rubicon that Harrison Klebold did. And so I, I'm curious, what ultimately... Is there, like, a tipping point where someone goes from being frustrated with high school to then actually t carrying out violence? That's a good question. They just felt so beaten down. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if there was, if I could point to an exact trigger, an exact moment. I mean, like I could say the first person to write about, to mention a mass shooting, a school shooting was Dylan in one of his diary entries. Okay. Right. I don't know that there was an exact tipping point. I think part of the difference in this, in the case of Combine, is there were two kids and they ended up feeding off of each other. Oh, I think sure. Yeah. Their, their anger and their thought process, they ended up building off of each other. Right. So I think that was a factor that caused them to cross the Rubicon. Yeah. Kind of one hand washes the other there, right? Where, you know, one sort of ideates, the other builds on it. It's, it, it, I mean, at that point, it's almost like a perverse kind of yes and improv exercise is what I hear you describing. Yeah, I, I don't know what exactly the improv exercise is, but I mean, I would say, yeah, one hand washes the other. One hand, you know, one guy builds the other guy up. Yeah. To speak. Or one guy has more like the thought, the other guy has like the, uh, the drive to get it done. Right. And, and all I mean by the improv comparison is the, the standard sort of architecture of an improv sketch is yes and. Like someone asks a question, you say yes. 
and then you build on the idea and, and the, the situation escalates from there. So for instance, like let's take an absurd example. There's an alligator in the garage, right? You could say that the person could say, no, there isn't. And the sketch ends there. Or the person can say, yes, there's an alligator in the garage and we have a saddle that fits just perfectly. So, you know, like you're, you're building an absurdist kind of situation there, but to take that out of the improv context, what you're describing is maybe one person has an idea, another person says, yes, and we could do this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea, and we could also do this. So it goes back and forth, and you're right, they're building each other up. That's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, because I know how friends can get carried away and kind of spiral off with, an, with any idea, really. Uh, unfortunately, this one is the worst one. Right, and, you know, I think if you read through the diaries and, and whatnot, Eric Harris one of the two shooters was sort of the more outwardly violent of the two and one of the more angry and sort of carried the ball down the field, so to speak, more than Dylan. Dylan was the more quiet one, but, you know, I think they both helped each other out. They both, you know, built upon each other in various ways. Another thought too is, you know, why these guys, right? And I don't know if this necessarily points to crossing when exactly they crossed the Rubicon, but that is a really good point um, or question. But, you know, they were pretty smart. Actually, I, I think they were very smart in a lot of ways, maybe smarter than average. Yeah. So there's the idea that when you you sort of feel that you're above other people mm. but don't get recognized for that, your fall, you, you have farther to fall. Yeah. And it, it sort of hurts more and it motivates you more to get revenge, right? Like if you're sort of an average guy, and you know, you're average and you know, you don't get the, the right date, the right girl you want. You're like, yeah, it's just cause I'm an average guy. Mm-hmm. I get it. But if you, you're smarter than other people or you think you are and you're not recognized for that, Ooh. you've fallen farther. Yeah. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. And that's an interesting point because clearly a couple of, couple of very savvy individuals here in terms of the way that they executed this and i suppose yeah that intelligence can be their enemy at that point particularly in terms of the way they're relating to their peers and the the things that they can come up with to enact the revenge they feel they're entitled to yeah revenge was a big part of it i mean if you were to say ask me you know what is the, the one thing that motivated these two i i would say revenge wow did you ever, because it was 10 years after the fact, and I know, and I, I'm sorry, I haven't read the book. Uh, I, now I can't not read it. I, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you in that I wouldn't say I'm necessarily like looking forward to it, but I am because who wants to relive this? But I am very much looking forward to seeing what you've uncovered here. Um, I know you met some resistance as you were gathering these facts from, you know, maybe it was uncooperative police or the parents of the shooters. Were there points where you wanted to give up on this and just pull the plug and say, you know what, this isn't worth it? Not that I recall. I mean, there were probably times I need to take a break. Sure, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, also some when people, if you're a good journalist or a good private investigator, when people shut the door in your face to, to information, basically, you know, figuratively Right, um, metaphorically. It just motivates you more. Okay. It just motivates you more to find 10 other doors to get the information. And, you know, sometimes 
you knock on those 10 other doors and you end up getting stuff you never even dreamed of. <laughs> so, so, what, more. so one door closes and I mean, it's like the old, cli- I just heard myself say it and I was about to finish it with a cliche, <laughs> but one door opens, others open and they end up being better doors anyway. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I've heard journalists described as professional malcontents. There's, there's a level of dissatisfaction until, uh, we reach resolution on whatever it is we're talking about. Um, do you identify with that at all? Um, I'm not sure, like, re, I, I don't think of journalists as malcontents in, in that sense. I think of them as sort of cynical, right? They have the, sure, yeah. the reputations being cynical and sort of, you know, in that sense, difficult maybe to work with if you're an editor or a manager, right? <laughs> right, sure. They're sort of, they're anti-authoritarian. You know, they don't like authority. They, they want to, you know, fight everything. So I think that's the way I think of journalists okay. more as malcontents. I, I mean, I would say they're more determined, right? Like the whole door shutting thing. If the door shuts and they can't get the information, they just are determined to find it in another way. So that's the way I think of them when it comes to the information job. Okay. That's funny. I mean, I've always, like, I, I love journalists. I always have. And we find ourselves in a really unusual cultural moment where a, a lot of professional journalism has been gutted financially. And, you know, I look at what's happening to the Denver Post by Alden Capital and I find it just absolutely appalling the way they've hollowed it out. But we also find journalists under attack, notably by the former president. And so I'm curious about your take on the state of journalism in say 2021 versus when you were practicing journalist and thoughts on perhaps how the industry can return to where it once was or should it? Um, well, I think it, it should. I think there should be more journalists. So I'm not really practicing as a journalist right now, but from what I read, what's happening now is you're having sort of a polarization of the journalism world. So the community, the small newspapers and even the medium sized to some like the Denver Post, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're being whittled away or disappearing. But the all the money, not all, but you know, a lot of the money and the talent is migrating to sort of the poles of the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, which were always, you know, the leading papers of the country, if not the world. But you know, it's just more of a polarization, almost like you know they say the the society is now right with poor people getting poorer, the rich getting richer. Right. It just the big newspapers are getting bigger and fatter. Don't don't mean to use that as like negative, but they're just getting bigger and more well funded. Right. Right. And and more and all the talents going there versus the smaller, medium sized newspapers are suffering. You know, so it, that's what I read about in journalism. Certainly. And one of the things part of my job, I, I will work with reporters, like you know, clients have stories they want to place, whatever. Um so I work with a number of, of reporters and one segment of the journalism industry that seems to be doing well is like business reporting. And I think the reason for that is people who work for companies can write off their subscriptions under like company credit cards. And so they've managed to monetize their product in a way to where traditional, you know, Denver Post style journalism or even something like the Colorado Sun, which is like a, is, is like a trust. I don't know exactly how that model works, but I know they just recently bought Colorado Community Media. 
it's easier to get someone to pay for something if they don't actually have to pay for it and their company does. I don't know how we can apply that model to more traditional style of print journalism, but uh, I hope someone out there is figuring it out. Well, I mean, paywalls, right? I mean, that's sort of been the mantra for a decade or so. If that's what they need, I I don't know. I'm not sure why they don't do it. I mean, there's, you know, trade-offs and issues with with ads, right? Like you you want more eyeballs on your publication. And I don't know if it's more worthwhile to provide the news for free, but get more eyeballs so you can charge advertisers more. Something's not working that great. Right. The equation is not well balanced at the moment. At what point did you decide to transition away from journalism and into something else? And what was that like? Well, you know, the first sort of plank in me stepping away from journalism was the closing of the Rocky Mountain News in 2009, which was not only the most continuously operated, the longest continuously operated business in the state of Colorado, but it predated the state when Colorado was still a territory. So, I mean, when you lose a business like that, you know, that survived the Great Depression, two world wars, I was wary at that point. I worked for a magazine after that, and that magazine ended up shutting down. Okay, I, I don't see a very stable future. And so, what what was the what was the next step for you? Because I know um, some journalists will start doing work in like PR. I've done work in PR forever. Journalists refer to it as going dark side. What was the transition away for you like? Did you immediately transition to what you're doing now, or did it look like something else? I never really thought about going into PR. I mean, I know a lot of journalists do. I'm aware of that transition, that common transition, but I never really thought about going into PR. I knew somebody who was a private investigator and I I had never thought about being a private investigator until I was basically surrounded by publications that were closing. Sure. And I just had the realization that, you know, hey, I do the same thing you do as a journal. You know, a journalist does the same thing private investigator does, find people, talk to people, write stories, write interview reports, find documents, you know, and a lot of times you encounter obstacles, right? Sure. People don't want to talk. The clerk doesn't want to help you. You know, you have a something says on paper, a document exists. You call the courthouse. They say it doesn't exist. <laughs> they, right? they just straight up say it doesn't exist when it does. There, there, yeah, there, there's... Probably, you know, I, I can't think of a specific instance, but, you know, just I, I do have these cases where, you know, for example, it happens in rural areas a lot in Colorado. Somebody will um, like you run a background report on them or you find some document on them and they're, they're at like they say they're at 123 Smith Road. Right. In like, let's say Park County. Right. Which is more rural county. So you you look up their property on the assessor. And the assessor's like, there is no one. <laughs> it's, I'm serious. I it's believe you. Summer. And you're like, what, well, what do you mean? There's no, well, I'm kind of used to it now. They're like, what do you mean there's no one, two, three Smith Road? They're like, you know, that person moved out into sort of the countryside. And, you know, like the neighbor was one, two, six or one, two, five. The guy, the, the other side was one, two, one. So they're like, well, this, I'm just going to call myself <laughs> one, two, three Smith Road. But legally speaking, Right. There is no such address <laughs> or, or, or parcel, right? And yeah. I, I've had the assessor say, well, you know, 
we, we're going to update our records or we're going to contact that person and tell them that person, that address does not exist. <laughs> so it's sort of untangling, you know, stuff like that can happen. Well, it's a lot like uh, I've done some work in oil and gas. And when you were trying to figure out who owns mineral rights, you yeah. fr- you're frequently down at the county courthouse and you're, you're looking through wills and deeds of trust and trying to figure out, like, who can we contact to legally start to develop this land? And it, it ends up being much more complicated than it would seem at first blush, which is what I exactly what I hear you describing. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, okay, so private investigator, a lot of what we understand culturally is filtered through media. And when you hear private investigator, you know, you picture maybe film noir or, you know, you're picturing um, even someone like Columbo who is, you know, out there trying to solve something or, you know, my I think my wife is cheating on me, that kind of thing. But I'm curious, what does the work actually look like? And, and what are the types of things that someone might hire a private investigator for? It's a huge range of things. So I will say at the outset, I do not look anything like the movie or media version. So like, let's blame the reporters, right? Blame, <laughs> blame, blame my former self for misinterpreting my current profession. Right. But, You're um, not out there in a trench coat and a, and a hat. Like, do not own. Do not even own. <laughs> uh, on some level, that's got to be disappointing if you're a listener. Like, depending on your sensibility, could be right. I'm sorry. I mean, you can, if you want to do that, you can become a private investigator and wear a trench coat and a fedora. Feel free. Yeah, that's just fashion. That. Like, you could do that without being a private investigator, and just, <laughs> just people go, that guy must be a PI. Right. Um, I do not do not own those articles of clothing. I. Don't think I've ever had a cheating spouse case, right? I just, I, I don't happen to do that stuff. So on the one end, cases I have involve police shootings, you know, police killings. So basically I would work if somebody was killed in a police shooting, I would be hired by the attorneys who represent the victim's family, the surviving family members. And, you know, essentially we investigate the shooting. I would, um, you know, go back and re-interview witnesses, right? Go to the scene, re-interview witnesses, because a lot of times the police, there'll be holes mm. in what they had, or, you know, they're strapped for time. They do some quick hit interviews, and there's, like, a lot more you could run down. Sometimes there'll be people who witness something or who have information about a police shooting, for example, and uh, they weren't, maybe they weren't home. Maybe it happened on a residential street. They weren't home at the time. So when police went and canvassed for witnesses, the person wasn't home, and maybe they didn't follow up. Yeah, maybe they had to move on to something else. Just the, the sort of day-to-day demands of a job that, that has a lot of tasks associated with it. Yeah, I mean, to, to you know, to in, their In their credit, defense, so certainly. Yeah, in their defense. You know what? There may be people who don't want to talk to the police. Sure. Who, who saw something or know something. And uh, the police knock at their door. They don't answer. The police call them. They don't answer. Or the or they talk to the police and they withhold information. Right. Yeah. I, that's that's interesting because the as you're describing this, what you are doing is journalism, just for for a a, a different purpose. But the the rhythms 
as you describe them, I'm listening, and it sounds almost exactly the same. That's that's fascinating. I never yeah. thought of it that way. I agree. <laughs> Which has got to be why you've been successful. Is this type of work ever dangerous? Because that's another sort of media narrative where you know someone gets too close to something, and all of a sudden there's either threats, overt, or um, maybe a little more subtle. But is the work ever dangerous? I mean, I've never had any major issue i mean occasionally like very infrequently somebody's going to tell you you know they're going to be angry tell you they don't want to talk or get out of here trying to think if anybody's ever like made a verbal threat you know um, like i'm gonna hurt you and i mean nothing's really coming to mind you know people say don't call me again Right. Or you're bothering me. I don't want to talk to you. You know, I don't want to talk about this. I have nothing to say and just say, okay, you know. uh, Are there times where you still have to come back though? Uh, well, there's pretty strict rules. So I mostly work for attorneys Mm -hmm. and private investigators are no longer licensed in the state of Colorado. But even when they were, you have to follow the F the same ethical guidelines the attorney is bound by okay. in about 90, 99% of the situations, right? Okay. So under that scenario, when you are a private investigator working for an attorney, if somebody says they don't want to talk to you, you cannot try them again. It's like a very, that's like one of the, the red lines Okay. in working for an attorney. You can't go back to people. If they, if they made clear, they don't want to talk. Interesting. But, but let me actually, so let me give you a twist, right? I think there, there's like an exception to that rule. So let's say you're investigating a murder case, right? Yeah. And you knock on someone's door. They say, I don't want to talk. I, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with this. I, okay. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day. Goodbye. Yeah. Let's say you go out and interview a bunch of other people involved in the case. And one of them says, oh, yeah, I saw the guy with the gun. It was this guy. Uh, sure. Let's say it's the guy who originally told you, right, I don't want to talk. I want nothing to. I think you are allowed to go back and return to that person with the idea of, hey, I've gained some substantially new substantive new information that I would like to run by. Maybe it will change your mind about talking because people say you were the shooter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, right? I mean, that's sort of pretty extreme, but I think a, a viable situation. I think under that scenario, you are allowed to return and try again if you have substantively new information along those lines. Sure, that, that this person can either... Uh, substantiate or refute or in, in some other way contribute in a meaningful way to the understanding of whatever it is you're working on. Is that what you're describing? If there's a major new development right. that I think they can speak to, okay, that would sort of tie into them, especially if it would tie into them, like people saying they're the shooter. Certainly. Absolutely. So you've written the definitive book on Columbine. You're doing work in private uh, investigations. I mean... You alluded to murder cases, police shootings. Does this type of thing ever wear you down? Are you ever, uh, like, is it too much? Because I know when I spoke to our mutual friend John Stein, he mentioned 
when he's working on a case and it's like a dog bite case or something, you know, sometimes there are photos you can't unsee. I'm curious, are there ever elements of this job that, that, that start to wear you down and how do you take care of yourself in that case? Yeah, I mean, sometimes just don't stare. You, you, know, you don't stare at the photos for too long or, I mean, there, there will be, you know, cases where, um, like if I have one of my, I have a couple investigators who work for me, like I don't need to look at every picture. Yeah. I mean, I will have them do that. So sometimes that's a way around it, so to speak. Sort of limit your exposure is what you're describing. If you, if you can, you know, but yeah. if you can, if you can and still do the case. Another thing that I fall back on as a private investigator, but also as a reporter and book author covering Columbine, I always think no matter how difficult these situations are for me, it's just a fraction of the difficulty of the people who went through it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So it's not to, de- not to diminish, you know, the, the sort of trauma that journalists and private investigators can have on these cases. But, you know, I always think whatever I'm, whatever difficulty I'm having with this, it's still a fraction of what people who actually went through it. That's an interesting coping mechanism because it's like a, a dedication to duty there where if, if I can help bring closure or insight or whatever to this for these folks, then it becomes worth work doing. Is that fair? There, yeah, there is that aspect to it. I mean, that, and that is what you are doing. Yeah. And what, I mean, I feel whether it's journalism or private investigating, you're helping to find answers. And by finding answers, you're helping people. It's one of the more interesting ways because on this show, what I talk about a lot, I mean, I've been doing this for seven and a half years, is I love exploring new corners of the employment world. And this is certainly a first for me. I mean, I've had a number of journalists on here, but never talked extensively about the work of a private investigator. And I, I find the work absolutely fascinating. Do you find you're fulfilled by, by the work that you do? Do you enjoy it? Do you, is it, is it something that, that you foresee yourself doing well into the future? Yeah, for sure. And, and what for is sure. it about that? Is it the helping people? Is it, or, or is it scratching those journalistic itches? What, what is it about it that you find so fulfilling? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I do want to help the client for sure. That's a huge motivator because that's really the bottom line, right? You're trying to help somebody who was injured in a crash or killed help their surviving family members. But I also like the investigating, the digging, you know, solving the mystery, whether it's finding someone's court records or finding the witness who who, who witnessed something. It's always digging up new information. Sometimes it's solving a little mystery. Sometimes it's solving a big mystery. Yeah, it's. I, I would say it's rare, at least in what I get to do, that I'm solving a mystery and I could see where that would be really rewarding and really fulfilling because, uh, I mean, who, who doesn't enjoy on some level putting a puzzle together? I mean, there, there are some people who do that extensively and that's like what they dedicate their free time to, but everyone enjoys that on some level. So I, I totally get it. That's interesting. A, a different question for you. How long was it between leaving journalism and going into private investigation? that you felt comfortable with, you go, I got a business here and this is good and I have a sustained pipeline to where I can support myself, I enjoy the work, and I'm confident that I can make a living at this over the long term. Well, it's probably a couple of years because I worked for another private investigator when I started out. Mm -hmm. So then I had to 
make one of those leaps that I assume you're familiar with if you interview a lot of business people. Sure. Um, basically, like, okay, so if I leave this company and go out on my own, can I be on my own? Yep. Is that going to work? And it actually was pretty quick. I mean, it must have been pretty quick that I was surviving. Yeah. Well, uh, I just ran into this guy again. He's a former guest on my show, but he always said, if you're getting that inclination to make the leap at a certain point, you just need to do it because what he says is leap in the net will appear, which is a terrifying kind of proposition. But if you believe in yourself, you believe in your talents, you're savvy, you're making contacts, you're, you're doing the things that you need to do. The universe tends to reward risk takers in that way. And based on your memory, it sounds like it happened pretty quickly for you. And that's great. I'm happy to hear that. I think, yeah, I think it must have. (laughs) And, and the fact that you don't have a strong memory associated with, you know, the early days or or struggling or walking uphill with this seems to indicate that, yeah, it must have. Yeah. So interesting. In this field, is there a type of case or a type of work you have not done that you wish you could do and separate question are there types of cases where you go i'm not interested in that that's not something i want to take on because i know for me in pr i don't particularly enjoy doing crisis communication so i don't make that part of my portfolio i don't make that as part of my services i can do it i don't enjoy it though so how about for you are there things that you would like to work on or are there things that you don't ever want to work on again no the thing i haven't done a lot of probably is white collar crime, like financial fraud. So, um, you know, that, that's something I, I might be interested in doing more of, or, you know, they're just something that I haven't done a ton of. I mean, the, the cheating spouses I I have never done. I don't have any desire to do. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that makes good sense. And what's funny is our, our cultural understanding that's where a lot of people's minds go first and you go, yeah, I'm not interested. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm the total opposite. Never done it, no desire. <laughs> yeah, well, that that just seems, I yeah, in terms, compared to what you've described to me that you are doing, I imagine that that wouldn't be terribly rewarding work. Not for me. I mean, right. some people might like it. Yeah, and I'm talking about you specifically here, so that <laughs> that makes good sense to me. All right, well, we need to wrap up here uh, in just a minute, but before we do, this is the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can people find you? Where can they find uh, your book, your your company? Anything you want to plug, the floor is yours. Okay, so the book is on Amazon. Um, as you said, Columbine, A True Crime Story. Readily, readily available on Amazon as far as I know. So as a private investigator, my website is thecastgroup.com, T-H-E-K-A-S-S group. G-R-O-U-P.com. My email is my name, Jeff Cass, J-E-F-F-K-A-S-S, at thecastgroup.com. Fantastic. I will put links to all of that in the companion blog piece. That'll be on johnofalltrades.us, also in the show notes. So if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Audible, wherever you get your pods, you can find all of that in the show notes. Jeff, I got to tell you, man, this was incredibly insightful and i really appreciate you going back and revisiting columbine yet again i'm sure you've done this an absolute infinite number of times but thank you for doing it here and also giving us insight on the work of a private investigator thank you for your time thank you for your candor and i wish you nothing but continued success thanks i appreciate it good show 
And that'll do it for episode 313 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you, Jeff Cast, for sharing your experience, sharing your expertise, and giving us insight into the life of a journalist turned private investigator. Phenomenal. Check out all those links. They'll be in the companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us. While you're there, you can check out my archives. There's more than 370 total episodes of the show. You'll find something you like. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. We do all manner of traditional communications activities, including PR, and I produce podcasts. I got a brand new one coming up in the pipeline I'm really excited about. So if you've got an idea for a show, hit me up. I can help you get it on wheels. D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is Four Degrees. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, Four Degrees can help you do it better. Whether you're running some sort of campaign, maybe it's email marketing, social media, on the web, advertising, marketing activities, Four Degrees can get your message in front of the people who need to see it most. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Stay up with me on social, J-O-A-T pod is the handle. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Facebook is the only place for exclusive episode previews. Those usually go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Pod catchers everywhere. Please rate, review, and subscribe. I've got one more brand new episode and a special edition coming at the end of the year. You'll want to stay tuned for that. We're going to finish strong until I hear you again. Thank you for listening. Say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.